welcome to the Transform Ed podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Tomlinson, and today we will be discussing the need to decolonise the school curriculum. To discuss this important topic, I'm joined by Kimberly McIntosh, Policy Advisor at the Runnymede Trust. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very good, thanks. Um, excited for this evening. Um, we are also joined by Roger Christophidis, who is from the University of Liverpool and has done work there on decolonising the university English literature curriculum. Hi, Roger. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Chloe. Hello, listener. Finally, we have Transform Ed editor Richard Oyewole, who is a primary teacher in South London. Hi, Richard. Hello. Kim, could you please start us off by explaining what do we mean by decolonising the curriculum? So when we're talking about decolonising the curriculum, I'm always referring to how has colonialism impacted our shared assumptions about what is important and what matters. And in relation to the curriculum, that's who gets to be included and who doesn't, who's missing, and the ways that we've been influenced by empire, which might seem quite far off and distant, um, actually still play a huge role in public opinion. So some work that Renny Mead did two years ago now, with Natsen found that 44% of people surveyed believe that some races are born harder working than others. If you have an understanding of colonialism, you can have a better understanding as to why people might think that way. So I think it's really important to link decolonising the curriculum and the impact of colonisation on the way that we think to kind of present social values and the way that we think now. Okay, brilliant. Hopefully we can explore both of those ideas in terms of what it actually means to decolonise the curriculum and the impact that might have um, in more detail. Richard, could you tell us what a not yet decolonised curriculum might look like? I guess it would just sort of be just things that sort of maintain the sort of dominant culture in society. So things that, I mean, I think Meghan Markle was famously (laughs) misquoted as saying, you know, the curriculum is too pale, too male, too stale. I don't think she did actually say that. But yeah, definitely there's just this sort of, we have this idea of that, you know, anything that's worthwhile, anything that's been done well, has only really been done by great white men. And so um, I guess a decolonised curriculum wouldn't look like that. It would have a bit more diversity. Okay, brilliant. Um, So we're going to later look more specifically at what that should include, but hopefully that at least introduces everybody to the concept. It'd be great now to talk a little bit about why why it is so important. So, Kim, you've touched on this um, already, talking about the way that we think about empire um, and colonialism impacting our sort of everyday understanding and experiences. Roger, can you talk a bit about why it is so important to decolonise the curriculum, what we might hope to achieve by doing that? I think speaking from a higher education perspective, I think there's two really, really important issues that we have to think about. The first is that definitely in higher education, I think that this is probably something that happens across the board, both in terms of staff and students, there is an under-representation of people from BAME backgrounds and also from working class backgrounds. Um, So if I can give just one very quick personal example, and that is that my social circle when I was at primary school was predominantly Bengali and black British. By the time I was a university student, that had completely changed. And what that indicates to us is two things. The first is that education in general tends to whiten as we progress up the ladder and that that happens especially in the humanities. So I think that is the first really, really important thing. So obviously we see, I mean, the university I went to was very white. So the the student Mm -hmm. body got whiter, gets whiter as you get older for for some pupils Mm -hmm. and certainly more middle class. But you're talking about the actual names and content of the curriculum. That is 
also something that we need to tackle. I think the curriculum is also uh, too white. And that is something that's really, really important that we need to address. So let me give you uh, another example. At more than one university that I've worked at, we have taught modules on the great American novel. And the assumption is usually that the great American novel is by white men. So writers like Ralph Ellison, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, often not included. So certainly at higher education level, we need to think about the things we are already teaching and how that might be changed and also what things we might want to introduce. Okay, brilliant. Uh, Kim, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, So I think without decolonising the curriculum, it would be really difficult uh, for us to deal in any serious way with racism, discrimination and prejudice. I think having an understanding of, um, for example, Empire Windrush has become a symbol of of post-war migration um, and much more recognisable. It was in the um, Olympic opening ceremony. Um, We've also sadly had the Windrush scandal this year. But it's a moment that... um, captures the public imagination now Um, but what we haven't had is a kind of understanding as to why these people came here um, and why other people in that breakdown of empire arrived here and I think until we have that wider understanding it's really difficult to then understand why prejudices exist why certain beliefs about people from different ethnic backgrounds exist but also why people came here in the first place. Richard, what do you think in terms of children seeing themselves represented on the curriculum? I think it's really important, actually, because I think at a younger age, they look so much to sort of their immediate surroundings as to what, where they sort of place their ambitions and what they think they can achieve. So, you know, it goes, you know, of course, the media has plays a part in that as well. But of course, you know, in school as well that happens too for example in books if they don't see themselves in it then it can sort of just limit where they see themselves I mean there's that um I don't know if you heard it Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie spoke mm-hmm. about how when she was growing up in Nigeria she only saw white protagonists in the story so whenever she wrote stories they were always right white and it wasn't until somebody sort of challenged that belief that she thought oh I can be in a story and so if p- children don't see themselves they won't think to see themselves in that situation. So, yeah, it's really important that they can see themselves in in stories, in the literature, and not just in sort of the, you know, the fairy tales, but also the real world, you know. So when we're talking about history, can they see themselves in that? Can they see themselves, you know, being scientists, being doctors, things like that? They really need that message of, oh, I can do this. There's somebody who looks like me, therefore I can do it. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Roger, could you tell us a bit about what the work that you have done on decolonising the curriculum at university level um, and, yeah, what that process looked like? Yes, yeah, so it's often a very fraught process and a very political process and a very difficult process. The debates tend to be about whether there is a set of knowledge that ought to be taught and whether there are things that we or to be teaching. And it probably will come as no surprise that there is a kind of straight line between what ought to be taught and the kind of dead white males who are often taught and what we perhaps ought to be teaching but aren't teaching and the kind of writers, like I mentioned earlier, who don't get taught yet. Now, some institutions do that better than others. Of course, some have more diverse um, diverse syllabuses than, than others. But it often comes down to what we think students 
ought to be studying at university level in order to give them a kind of broad knowledge of what English literature is. And the debate is really, why does that keep lining up with the kind of canonical dead white often male authors that dominate the the curriculum so that is often often the battle but the battle isn't just about what we teach is it okay to carry on a little yeah i, I want to ask you more about <laughs> okay. the canon as well but, so, but um, go on the battle isn't just about what we teach it's often about how we teach it as well so if i can give one example from from my field which is shakespeare studies and that is that there has been a long tradition of teaching hamlet with Hamlet considered to be the paradigm of, of human experience. You know, Hamlet is the great expression of the troubles and strifes and, and general experience of being human that Western literature has. To me, the question I would ask is, is it just a coincidence that Hamlet is also a rich white man? Why is it that Hamlet is the paradigm for human experience and not Othello, who experiences being a migrant, who experiences being forced outside from a society from which he is not quite a part, and experiences the kind of anxiety of constantly having to second-guess what he's thinking, what he's saying, and how he's behaving? Why is it that he isn't the paradigm of humanity? I would suggest that the reason for that is that our discipline, certainly at higher education level, has been dominated by a kind of white middle-class men, usually, who see themselves in Hamlet. And so it's not just about the texts we teach, it's also about the emphasis we tend to put on them and the things that we think are central to those texts. Yeah, I think it's really uh, sort of refreshing to hear you pick out an example within Shakespeare because often people assume that by decolonising the curriculum you're saying you can't teach Shakespeare anymore because he was a white man, Mm. um, when actually just the way that like you say, we pick out Hamlet rather than Othello, shows that it's not just about the content that we're looking at, it's also, um, and the quality of it is also like which bits of it we're most that's, drawn that's to. That's absolutely right. And if we didn't teach Shakespeare, I'd be out of a job. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I want to go back to the more broad idea of the canon. And in school education, a big idea at the moment, particularly since Michael Gove, has been that it is the job of state schools to equip children with knowledge, which is the best that has been thought and said, so that all children understand this, and particularly working-class children and BME children need this knowledge because this is the knowledge that will give them access to power. Now, even if we recognise that Toni Morrison is on the same level, I mean... In my opinion, she's a much better writer than Jane Austen. But even if we recognise that those writers you've mentioned have just as much a place on a canon of the best that has been thought and said, there is perhaps, um, because we live in a world that is a very white male world where it unfortunately often is privately educated white men who have power, that access to the dominant traditional canon will afford people more more power in society, giving them better access to kind of climbing the ladder. Do you see any sort of tension there? Do you see there being any any potential that if we decolonise the curriculum in state schools, it will mean that working-class children and BME children don't have the same cultural capital as privately educated pupils, and that in doing so, we're therefore doing them a disservice? Richard, you or Kim, you might also want to come back on this. Yeah, um... Okay, so it's a very complicated question. It's difficult to give an answer to that question that isn't somewhat reductive. But there's a couple of things to say. The first is, who gets to decide what is 
the, the best that, that we can that we can be the best knowledge that we can be and I'm not sure what the phrase you used was it's Gove's phrase isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That, he likes to, that he likes to roll out and that is a really important issue because and I can go into this afterwards but I won't do it now the, the reason why part of, a big reason why certainly in the humanities and certainly in English literature we have the curriculum we have dominated the way it is is because certain people got to decide and what they considered to be great literature and important historical events reflected their own opinions. That's the first thing. Secondly, there is room for all these things. It's not an either or. We often get trapped into fighting about these things because I say Othello and you say Hamlet, right? Um, but it's not an either or. There is space for these things. The third thing is, from my experience, that diversity, students who encounter that kind of difference, who can... Read the canon, fine. We should be reading the canon because we need to know its history, the history of its production, the context of its production, and why it is we might have a problem with it. And we should be reading other stuff too. And those students who are engaging on a broad level with a lot of literature are better students. They are better at critiquing and analysing texts, critiquing and analysing historical events. And that is what we want people who study English and who study literature, those are the skills they need to have to take out into the world. So those are the reasons that, in short, I would give. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I think you're right. There's a richness to diversifying the canon in itself, which sometimes almost gets forgotten in, in these conversations. So for us at Me, definitely with our project, Our Migration Story, we always try and emphasise that for history, because this um, the work that we do is focusing on the history curriculum, that this is about our national story and migration has always been a part of that. Empire was a large part of that. And it isn't about making history PC or trying to um, do a representation project which is in bad faith. It's really about just being honest about the past and that includes some good and some bad. Migration is very central to that. And in the process, we also introduce children to a wider to have a wider understanding of British history in its full and proper way. At the moment, history, there are huge gaps in it. There are huge parts missing. I think they refer to the way it's taught in the moment as the Henrys and Hitler. And there's definitely, definitely space for that. But I think we just need to have an honest conversation about what Britain and who Britain really is. And I don't think that that's a pandering exercise. I think it's just a reality and it's honest. And I think we all benefit from that. Like, Personal anecdote, when I think back to school, you know, I did two years of Gladstone and Disraeli and I loved Disraeli. I'm still a huge Disraeli fan. I've been to see Disraeli's house and I learned a lot from learning from people who are completely different to myself. Gladstone had slaves. I didn't love that part, but I was still able to connect with those stories and see it as part of British history. And I definitely think that in a country which is over 85% white, that children have things to learn that on the face of it might not look like it has a direct link to their life now. They might not see themselves in it in the same way that I did when for the first time I read White Teeth or learnt about Stuart Hall. But there's still so much that they get to gain from that experience. So to see it as kind of an either or, I think, is doing a disservice to what children can get out of people who don't, on the face of it, seem similar to them. We do also often make, sometimes, and wrongly make the assumption that 
literature that is canonical is for white people and that literature that isn't canonical is for non-white people. Mm. And that simply isn't true and there's no reason why, you know, your the example you gave of a kind of white, blonde-haired public school kid shouldn't want to read Toni Morrison. There's no reason why mm. that shouldn't happen. And we often slip into making these lazy assumptions about who wants to read what or what historical events they might be interested in. Yeah, that's something that I find really interesting. Uh, like, I totally agree with them. I find really interesting to think about in terms of from a, as a teacher point of view, in terms of education policy, in terms of what the sort of national curriculum looks like, and then how it's actually delivered in schools. Because actually, when Go first drafted his history curriculum, it was incredibly prescriptive and came under huge amounts of criticism, both from teachers and the historical community, including some of the historians like Simon Sharma, who he had actually chosen to help him draft it because he sort of created what uh, Simon Sharma, I think, called a shopping list of historical events which were really chosen in order to paint Britain in a very wonderful light. Now, the final version of the curriculum people were on the whole a lot happier with it is I think we would all agree it's a huge improvement on the earlier drafted versions and there is quite a lot of choice on it now there's good things as a teacher I do think that schools should have a lot of choice over the curriculum they deliver but I think I don't know if any of you have any experience of this um, which should be really interesting to hear about your experience as a, as a primary teacher but it does seem like because schools actually are given sort of some broad bullet points, i.e. in Key Stage 2, children should study about one element of local history and then they have power within that to kind of choose what they study. It quite often ends up happening that schools in London, schools in very diverse areas, schools with high proportions of BME pupils will end up teaching black history because they know that that's meaningful to their pupils And, of course, it is really important for those pupils to see themselves in the curriculum, but it's definitely not just BME pupils who need this. It's white pupils who need this as well. And I think that is something interesting to think about going forward, that actually how, while giving teachers some choice about what they teach, how do we make sure that everybody gets that diverse curriculum? Richard, it would be really interesting to hear generally from you what you think decolonised curriculum in primary should look like, especially maybe in Key Stage 1, because uh, I know that's where you're teaching at the moment, and also maybe some of your experiences about the differences between different schools um, and how well they are doing at teaching a diverse and decolonised curriculum at the moment. Mm. So I guess one thing that just sort of instantly came to my mind actually during this was um, one time I was doing just a short session on phonics and I had different pictures for different things and... Um, I always try and make sure that, you know, it's not just uh, one colour. And even if, you know, we have, say, 90% uh, African and Caribbean children in the class, I still don't necessarily then want, you know, 90% of the people in the um, PowerPoint slides to be black because then that sort of... We need to actually make it that they're not just seeing one thing, you know. So I try and make it very diverse. And um, I intentionally put an Asian person in uh, one of my pictures and um, again you couldn't really tell where this person was from they could have been you know from many places in East Asia I didn't you know specifically decide which one it would be so I just put that up there just to see what their reaction to that would be and it was crazy but their reaction was disgust they all just went oh you know and that actually quite shocked me and I said okay what what's the issue here why don't you like and it was a baby as well it was a really cute baby how old are these children they're year one. Year one. They're year one. So, so five, yeah, and six. five and six. And 
their instant reaction was just disgust. And um, I was, yeah, I was really shocked. And I said, OK, what's the issue here? And they just said, oh, we don't like that baby. And I said, why? Why? What's wrong with the baby? And they couldn't even put it into words. And then then they sort of came around and they said, oh, no, 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 like, she's fine, blah, blah, blah. And it sort of felt like, actually, now they're just sort of saying that because I've sort of, you know, told them off a little bit for it. And it was really just interesting to see that just seeing something that they don't usually see suddenly just threw them off and they had that really strong reaction to it. And also as well, just their assumptions, you know, if I didn't do that just out of, you know, if I just thought, okay, I won't do that, I'll just keep it white and black and I didn't put that Asian person in there. I remember one of the children just went, oh, that's a Chinese baby. And I said, oh, how do you know it's a Chinese baby? And he said, oh, he just looks Chinese. And I said, oh, okay, uh, you come to the front. And I said, and it was a black child. And I said, oh, where's he from? Can you tell that he's from, you know, can you tell where he's from? And they were like, well, he's from Jamaica. I said, how do you know? And they're like, oh, because he told me. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but if you didn't know where he was from, you know, we could say he could be from Nigeria, Ghana. There's diversity in this. And just because of someone's skin colour, it doesn't necessarily give you a clear indication of where they're from. And so by the end of the lesson, then I came back to her and I said, oh, where's this, you know, who can describe this child? And they just said, oh, it's an Asian child. And I said, there we go. You know, because we we can't just tell these things. And I think as well, it's important for them to see that actually just by looking at someone, they can't, you know, make all of these assumptions. Because I think as children anyway, that's the way they sort of understand the world, just by grouping things and, you know, painting things by number. And it's just, oh, this is that and this is that. And I think especially if, you know, that links with the curriculum as well, it all needs to be a lot more nuanced. It can't just be this is that and this is that. It's, you know, we have to sort of question these things and trouble these things and, you know, challenge like the dominant cultures. I find it really interesting talking to you um, working with, key stage one children because it does look very different there the sort of conversations that you have about a decolonized curriculum at university level down to working with very young children it is very different but Mm. it is it does still make a big difference Mm -hmm. that will really affect how those children respond to asian children when they meet them and see them so thank you for that but the other thing i was just wondering is in terms of consistency within schools have you noticed much variation between schools? I spoke to a, a history teacher, a secondary school history teacher before this podcast, and he said on the whole about the curriculum, you know, there's some good things happening and there's still a very long way to go. Um, and it depends a lot about the school you're in. Um, some schools will make sure that they teach pre-colonial Africa. Um, and for instance, he said a school had been at had done a lot of really great work around the Benin Empire. And similarly, some schools doing lots of work on Islamic history, but not everywhere is. And looking at the history curriculum for GCSE, for instance, schools are required to choose to cover three geographical contexts. One um, is a locality, so an area that they study over time, and one area should be British, and the other is European or the wider world setting. So it might be that some schools don't choose to study anything at outside of Europe. So in primary, have you seen much variation in the schools that you've been in, in terms of how decolonised their curriculum is? Mm, yeah, it can it can be really quite actually different from secondary because you don't have that, you know, specialised teacher. It's just a general thing. It really just depends on the school and how willing the teacher is to make that push for foundation subjects because we know that, you know, when things get hard and we've got phonic screenings coming and sats and things like that the first thing to go are the foundation subjects and so that history can come into that um i've seen and geography as well actually because i think one thing that i've seen 
you know, and I've done a lot of supplies, so I've managed to be in quite a few different schools. And just when Africa comes up, what children's sort of connotations of that are. And in some schools, you'll see it will come up and it will be, you know, part of a really big topic and they'll explore things and they're trying to smash misconceptions. And then there are some schools where the only time Africa comes up is when it's, you know, children in need or something like that. And so I think, yeah, it really just depends on how... Sometimes it can actually depend on sort of the resources that the schools have because if they're the kind of school where maybe they don't necessarily have a lot of teaching assistants who can, you know, do all of the sort of interventions that, you know, would help the school to meet certain standards. If it's a teacher who feels like they're kind of on their own and they have to do everything by themselves, then, yeah, things like geography, history, they'll fall at the wayside so that they can focus on, you know, the three R's. So sometimes it is a bit of a... It depends on how rich the school is, I guess. You said you've seen some some schools do really good topics um, on Africa. What specifically can you recommend any topics to any any primary school teachers listening? Nigeria is a good one. I might be biased, but (laughs) (laughs) Nigeria is a good one. What's really good, actually, is just, you know, when you actually bring in the children's culture, because they can bring such like a just the wealth of knowledge, you know, and their own experiences. And, you know, children just love to speak about, you know, their cooking and what their mum cooks and things like that. And, you know, when we talk about fashion and clothes and practices that we do, I think actually, you know, when it comes to decolonizing the curriculum, a child-centered approach, when done correctly, can be really powerful. Brilliant. Um, Kim, do you want to add anything about, we've talked a bit about migration on the history curriculum. Is there anything you want to add? Yeah, so at the moment, there's, I think, since 20, September 2016, OCR and AQA for GCSE put on a module called Migration to Britain. And it's a great module. Um, it's really amazing. But because of that discretion with what subjects can be taken, which is kind of is teacher is at the teacher's discretion, you don't see the uptake necessarily that we would like to see. And as you said, it is taken up in areas that tend to have lots of BME children. And the issue is that there's a tension there because we want teachers to have the freedom to teach um, what they're passionate about, what they're comfortable teaching, and sometimes even what has been taught before because, you know, there's been a legacy there of the lesson plans and you know how well students have done in the past and there are league tables to think about. But these are the pressures that teachers are facing when presented with what is a very interesting module but is a new one. And so for us, it's a question of thinking how can we encourage teachers to take it up and feel more comfortable teaching it because making something mandatory um, is also definitely very difficult but also we don't want to take that power away from teachers and it's quite difficult to know um, from a policy perspective what to suggest so at the moment I think it's just encouraging teachers showing them why it's important but also supporting them because there has been we did a survey as part of our project um, asking teachers who you know, were teaching it, what challenges they faced. And a lot of them said that there is an issue about feeling comfortable, particularly if you're a white teacher in um, a mostly ethnic minority school, feeling comfortable teaching it, being sensitive and thinking about what you're also bringing to it is challenging and teachers are under a lot of pressure and stress. So it's kind of thinking of how can we work with teachers to make it easier and get the uptake across the country and not just in London and Birmingham, but also in Devon and Cornwall, which you could argue maybe need this material as much as um, ethnic minority children do. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that it you can imagine if it was made, made statutory mm. and then those teachers who are choosing not to teach at the moment 
they might if they're doing it reluctantly that's going to have problems mm. as well i think what's interesting is so as a teacher who would really like to be better at delivering a decolonized curriculum i do not feel very well equipped to do so i started teaching in 2014 with really sort of very little understanding of colonial history of race in britain of the history of migration and you know i'm making some effort to understand those issues better and to become better educated about them but it didn't feature on my teacher training and often when you're teaching what you what you know and this may be perhaps even more true as a primary school teacher because you're having to teach so many different subjects but I think it's true in secondary as well you do rely a lot upon your own education and whether that's your school education or university education it certainly does does affect how well you're able to teach things because if I decide to learn something from scratch in order to teach it because I really believe in that topic that isn't necessarily going to mean that I'm as confident delivering it in something that I have had a detailed education about myself. Can I say something from the perspective of higher education that um, may be relevant to, to, to the secondary school sector and the primary school sector? But there is always that that kind of resistance that that people have when they're faced with new things and they're made to feel like they have to teach this stuff that they're not comfortable with and that it doesn't mean that much to them or that they're alienated from it in some way and that it's uncomfortable for them. There is a flip side to that and that is that confronting alienation and confronting awkward histories and confronting that feeling of having to deal with something that doesn't quite feel comfortable is the experience of most people yeah um and so we do have to while we have to acknowledge that kind of that feeling of uncomfortable that discomfiture that an educator might have is also important i think to remind them that that is precisely the history of minorities and migration and empire is that britain has made a lot of people feel like that and they are constantly people from with those heritages are constantly confronting every day those histories and the pressures those histories put on them. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that around the edges of of these of the kind of content are pedagogical issues, which is how should we teach this? How should we assess that? What are the best kind of rooms that we should be in? How how do we organise our teaching? Those things are part of it as well. Uh, everything that we have lined up, certainly in higher education, in terms of how do we assess students and what kind of knowledge do we assume they have and what is the best way for them to engage in the subject matter. There are traditions to these things and they are traditions that benefit certain people from certain backgrounds who have the cultural capital to engage in a particular way. Mm, yeah, I think that point about that discomfort being something that privileged people, white people, maybe are less used to encountering um, is a really important one. I, I do also want teacher training to at, at least be having these conversations mm-hmm. and be making these points. And actually what's really interesting is maybe for teacher education at the very least to make teachers want to take on that discomfort even if it's not necessarily you know even if it's not necessarily a bad thing that there will um will be some degree of it left and i mean it's discomforting because it's not normal right we need to make it normal and make it just what we do and and not something that is unusual and strange it's strange because we have a history of not doing it right we, yeah. slowly slowly that history will change yeah um as part of a literature review we're doing it well i should shout out to Dr. Jason Todd, who's actually the one doing it, because he's writing it right now. Um, but it, he's looking at some of the 
research that has been done, there's not that much on, as you said, like kind of how these histories, in terms of history anyway, are being taught in schools and the problems that teachers are facing or kind of how they're feeling. Um, and there was one journal that interviewed some teachers. It was a really small study, but one teacher said that teaching slavery as a white man, he felt morally judged. But then I think that brings into question how how well was he then teaching that subject? Yeah. I'm sure that people weren't morally judging him, but I think there's also a question about making teachers aware of what they're bringing to the lesson and their own life experiences when they're teaching sensitive topics, which I don't think is part of the conversation at the moment, but could maybe be part of a wider teacher training. Yeah, brilliant. So we've come on there a bit to some barriers that individual teachers might need to overcome. I wondered if any of you have any comments on sort of like policy and more sort of like politically what the obstacles are, if there's any signs of hope. We have a policy document. Kim, would you like to say a little about that? Yes. So on the 4th of July, we'll be launching a policy document called Teaching Migration, Belonging and Empire, which will be looking at the kind of topics we've been discussing today, um, but also suggesting some policy recommendations for government and for schools and for teachers as well, based on a project we've been doing with Liverpool called The Tide Project, which took on 12 English and history teachers and did a three different sessions of looking at lesson plans and having people come in to talk experts to support them with that but challenges what we found definitely there are some political challenges in relation to trying to expand the curriculum particularly for history which is seen as um, by some as engendering patriotism or national pride I think there's a question about national pride for who if you're not seen or included in the national story, then it's quite difficult to then feel pride in that story. But nonetheless, without wanting to get too political, there are definitely, there's been progress around this issue from the Labour Party, who seem quite open to having a discussion about teaching empire and migration and trying to do that well and less enthusiasm from other political parties. And that presents a huge challenge when trying to do more of a, top-down policy change that would say all school I mean even then we have the academization of schools so it wouldn't be all schools but a chunk of schools need to teach migration and empire for example that I think is quite challenging to do at the moment but I think there are things that teachers and schools can do but I think teachers need to kind of get buy-in from their heads of departments to take up the modules um, and potentially send them on training but they have to be the advocates for this work maybe parents too actually yeah they can also talk to teachers and make a case to schools um, until we have more success from the government level yeah brilliant I often think when you want to see changes in education we've got to we've got to push for the government to be making mm. the, the kind of changes that we um that we want to see and but at the same time you don't you don't necessarily have to wait for that like there are things that teachers can do in their classroom there are things that you can encourage your schools to do and actually it's a, becoming a bit of a theme that sometimes choosing the right modules with the right exam boards is is can can be quite a big part of that so that that really you've already led us on to really to our, our finishing question which is just you know maybe one or two points that teachers listen to this podcast can do today maybe to educate themselves better maybe to bring about change in their school or conversation they have with their head teacher um i would say particularly in uh key stage one primary i would just say encourage those sort of discussions that you might sort of shy away from and a way to sort of you know bring about those discussions in a kind of non-artificial way 
is sort of just to make sure that, you know, they are seeing people from diverse backgrounds in your classroom, be it your PowerPoints, your stories, and you'll find naturally those conversations will crop up. And then when they come, don't just gloss over them, you know, grab it and just pause and bring the attention to that. You know, I remember one time a girl said to me, she said, oh, I, I, well, she didn't say it to me. She said it underneath her breath and I could have ignored it, but I, I, I said, no, let's, let's take this. So she just said, oh, I wish I could be white. And um, I said, oh, why, why is that? Why do you wish you could be white? And she said, oh, because I want to eat um, fish and chips when I go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you'll actually find you can find really funny conversations from this. And, it's, you know, don't be afraid of the conversation. Sometimes they'll be very difficult. Sometimes, you know, they'll say things that are troubling. They'll say that they don't like how they look. They feel that like, um, maybe their hair isn't uh, doesn't look the right way. And actually sort of by unearthing those things then you can see what do I need to do now oh if I notice one of them is coming and they've got a different hairstyle oh you know I'll compliment them they really take that to heart and they, it really does lift them up when they they hear that actually their hairstyle that they actually come in and they feel a bit uncomfortable about and a bit unsure about because it doesn't look as you know as everybody else's if you can just give them that compliment that will actually change how they view themselves yeah fantastic um, there's a guy on Twitter called Pran Patel who his Twitter handle is at Mr Pran Patel and he also has a blog which is www.theteacherist.com and I, I don't know if either of you have um, come across him at all but he's somebody who certainly on um, Edu Twitter at the moment is I think starting some really important conversations um, and having them in a very accessible way that is very easy to engage with so I would um, certainly recommend that yeah. Anybody else want to add anything? I can make a couple of recommendations. Obviously, I've been talking about um, higher education. So um, one of the things that we spoke about a lot on the TIDE project that with the teachers on the Beacon Fellowship that Kim mentioned is that we don't collaborate enough across the sector. And that really uh, in higher education, primary education, um, secondary education, we need to have a more holistic approach because we're often, especially in higher education, we're often stuck in our little bubble and, and not really not really talking to other people in education. So I'm going to suggest a couple of kind of resources in higher education that might be useful for, for um, uh, secondary school and primary school teachers. The first is a learning and teaching school kit for decolonising the curriculum that SOAS um, have put together, uh, which is on their website. And also have a look at the NUS's Black Attainment Gap project, which is kind of focusing on the whys and wherefores of why graduates from black and minority ethnic backgrounds are not finding as much meaningful work. Brilliant. Thank you. We have some resources that can support teachers, secondary school mostly, though called Our Migration Story. It's a collaboration between the University of Manchester, Cambridge and the Runnymede Trust and 80 academic historians and local historians. So even if you're not teaching the um, Migration in Britain module, it has lots of different stories of individuals, also working class histories as well and local stories that could be used even just for standalone classes and it has um, lesson plans that you can download so if you are interested and wanted to use that just to start with that could be really useful brilliant can you also just remind us what the modules and the exam boards are that people could try and encourage their departments to take up yes so the modules called migration to britain and the exam boards are ocr and aqa um at excel isn't doing anything on this at the moment but put pressure on them yeah fantastic 
Thank you so much, Kim and Roger and Richard, uh, for joining us today. Uh, it's such an important topic, and I've learned a huge amount from our session. So thank you. Thank you also to our listeners. And if you enjoyed this, please follow us on Twitter at transform underscore edu, um, so you can stay up to date with.